0: Today on the Just 7 Steps podcast, I get the distinct honor and pleasure to talk to a very fine and increasingly well-known behavior analyst, deservedly so, Ms. Emily Wilson. I have been fortunate enough to have had the chance to present several times with Emily in recent years. One of the main topics of our discussions recently has been about the importance of assent in education. The term assent refers to the physical demonstration of consent meaning that if someone doesn't offer verbal or written consent, perhaps, maybe they're not capable. It is still important for us as parents and teachers, and especially behavior analysts, to be able to identify that this child can offer us demonstrations of their willingness to engage or cooperate. And that this assent is something that we should not only strive for in our education programs, but also something that we should avoid working without. Children can assent to participation in your education plan or they can withdraw their assent. It is becoming clearer and clearer that the more we look at their assent withdrawal as communication instead of inappropriate or just refusal behavior, the better we can be about designing teaching settings that evoke or motivate assent in our learners. I knew I wanted to do a podcast on Ascent and I couldn't think of anybody better than my next guest, Emily Wilson, who will be joining us right here on Just 7 Steps.
1: Welcome to the Just 7 Steps podcast with Robert Schramm, a board-certified behavior analyst, educator, author, and developer of the 7 Steps to Successful Parenting. For more than 20 years, Robert has been teaching parents and professionals how to support children in developing the values and priorities necessary to live a successful life. In this podcast, you'll hear from some of the biggest experts in the fields of education, parenting, and behavior analysis. So buckle in and get ready for a wild ride where you'll learn to be your best in just seven steps.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, parents of all ages. I couldn't be more excited than to bring you uh, my next guest. Uh, Emily Wilson has been a BCBA since 2016 and has worked with autistic individuals and others using the principles of ABA since about 2012, I believe. Her first big job in the field is with our last guest, Dr. Megan Miller, back when Megan was just a lowly master's level BCBA like us. Uh, In 2018, Emily left Navigational Behavior Consulting and set up her own shop with a mentor from NBC. In 2019, she founded the Tidewater Behavior Analysts Collaborative and is their current chair. Uh, In addition to board certification as a BA, Emily is also a certified clinical trauma specialist. Uh, She mentions Megan Miller and Lori Stacey as her influences on her career, as well as her current business partner, Katie Fitterer, among others. Uh, If you didn't have a chance to, be sure to check out that previous episode where I got to sit down and talk with Dr. Megan Miller. Uh, Definitely go back and find it. Megan was an amazing guest and uh, has done so much for the field. And I'd I'd like to point out um, that she often has had to do that while swimming upstream against uh, the status quo opposition. So, Emily, welcome and uh, thank you for being here.
1: Of course. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I just wanted to ask, I'm curious, because you've also been someone on the forefront of fighting for a more compassionate ABA, have you run into any pushback from others in the field? And do you think your work as a trauma specialist has helped to color your current approach to ABA for children with ASD?
1: I have hired both folks in, with experience in ABA and uh, folks without. Experience in ABA, and what I've noticed is that um, while ABA certainly has our our specific field-specific problems that we need to face head on, uh, that there is a cultural. Way that we regard children, um, disabled or otherwise, that does not emphasize their autonomy, that regards children as uh, entities to be controlled by adults. And while, of course, I recognize that there are safety concerns and uh, that children do need guidance, um, they're they're not born with the knowledge that they need to be functioning adults. Of course. I do notice that there is not a ton of difference in the learning curve between folks who have been in the field for a while when I train them on ascent-based therapeutic practices and folks who are brand new to this and should reasonably be blank slates comparatively. Um, So that's one interesting thing that I think about when we're we're talking about like pushback, and then of course there's the more classic pushback of kind of the old school old school folks who um, are not ready to take an, a progressive approach to providing services, and I think that that is kind of part and parcel of any evolutionary process.
0: Yeah, and I think that's kind of what I was focused on in the question is, um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: ha- have you had to deal with some of that?
1: Certainly, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I present on Ascent-based interventions pretty frequently, and there's always, uh, you know, doubters who have kind of come to that um, webinar or workshop or whatever seemingly to, uh, I don't know, de- debunk <laughs> my um, assertions that a should be uh, an important component of your programming as, a, as, a analyst, as an analyst and an implementer.
0: Well, I've, I've definitely seen and been part of some of your presentations, so I know you can handle it. Um, so, uh, let's, let's just backtrack a little bit. Um, I think most behavior analysts can point back to an aha type of a moment when the principles of behavior just kind of bonked them on the head and said, well, I guess we're going to be friends now. Um, did you have a moment like that uh, where you just knew that that ABA in some form was, was the path that you needed to be on uh, and taking as a teacher and or a clinician?
1: I think more so than a moment that the science of behavior. So I, I was raised by a college professor and a career counselor. So um, this kind of worldview that I, I grew up with really vibes with a science of learning, right? Like this, it just makes sense to me. My undergraduate, um, my undergraduate degree is in sociology. And I minored in religion. And I I really like the, uh, the study of people and making sense of us. <laughs> right? I'm just kind of naturally drawn to that. And this science really vibes with how I see the world as um, a lot of environmental influences kind of pushing people in one way or another.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thanks. So let me ask you, when you first received your training in APA, were there any techniques or recommendations that left you a bit concerned or things that just didn't sit right with you?
1: Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I'm honestly, I'm embarrassed to say that there were a lot of things that at the time I didn't, it, it didn't red flag for me right like i didn't get that kind of buzz in the back of my head that now i absolutely would now that i have a trained eye and i it, i think it does go back to that initial answer about kind of our cultural attitudes towards um you know children and another layer on that disabled children um that it didn't kind of red flag for me that I was, you know, forcibly like manipulating someone's hands while they resisted me. Um, That is not okay. (laughs) I think I I don't even really like to describe it, even though that hasn't happened in years and years. Um, And (sighs) yeah, I, you know, my practice is ever evolving. There are things that I did 10 years ago that I wouldn't do now. And there are things that I did two years ago that I wouldn't do now. And I hope that in another two years, as part of my commitment to lifelong learning, there are things that I'm doing now that as my practice evolves, I will abandon. um, Because that's, that's what it is to have an ever evolving practice.
0: Yeah, I, I totally um, understand and agree with that. I mean, the whole point here of, of teaching, whether it's a science, a scientific approach or not, is that you want to keep getting better. And I think that whether we're talking about teaching or athletics or um, you know anything in your life that you want to be as good as you can at, you're going to look back at yourself two years earlier and five years earlier and ten years earlier and go, wow, I really I really wasn't that good then um and and that's the whole point and i think we want to all make sure that we're continuing to get better and better and better and not just allowing ourselves to sit back on the status quo and say look i've helped a lot of kids so if it worked then it's working now and and i think that um, having someone like you and and megan and uh, a bunch of others in the field who are really um, sharing that information and pushing others i think is really helpful and one of the reasons i wanted to join the show today um So, as you know, the topic of our show today is about Learner Ascent. Um, I talked a bit up front about what Ascent is and why I think it's important in ABA. Uh, In fact, Learner Ascent was one of the main reasons that I developed the seven steps to begin with. Uh, There just wasn't enough opportunity for kids uh, to choose participation in ABA at the time. and Too much captured learning was going on. Um, I know you as a clinician who is very forward-thinking and spends a lot of your time training others uh, on the importance of ascent. Uh, Can you explain to our viewers and listeners how you define ascent and why you feel it's so important?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so assent is a lot like consent, but uh, more subtle. So consent is really a, a legal term. It refers to things like informed consent, written consent, that kind of thing, where you are expressly, either vocally or in writing, um, saying, I agree to this thing. Um, assent is much, much more subtle, but uh, has the same kind of under. Current, So um, when we are looking for learner ascent, uh, Greg Hanley refers to this as being happy, relaxed and engaged. Um, we are looking for body posture. We are looking for rate of responding. Um, Steve Ward refers to that as steam. Um, so we're, we're looking for happy, relaxed engagement. We're looking for steam, right? We're looking for that um, kind of level of active engagement engagement. Uh, that's when you have a, a, a who is assenting to instruction. Uh, when you when assent has been withdrawn, you can expect to see a low rate of engagement. You can expect to see body posture turning away or being very still. Um, you can expect to see, you know, more outward clear signs of ascent withdrawal, like the tantrums or, or flopping or that kind of thing, more obvious stuff. Um, so that's kind of what we're talking about—that's the framework that we're thinking about when we're talking about it's ascent based instruction.
0: Awesome, thank you, thank you for that explanation. I think it's much better than the one I gave at the front end of this <laughs> this uh, podcast. Um, so I am curious, um, since this podcast is called uh, "Just Seven Steps," uh, when did you first learn about the seven steps to instructional motivation, and if it did. Uh, how did it affect your approach in the early days?
1: Yeah, so um, you mentioned that I, I worked for Navigation early in my career, and obviously Megan is a co-author on Seven Steps. Um, I actually did have a uh, a position at a company a year prior to working with um, Navigation, and so I did. I got to see this real contrast between. I think old school ABA, maybe or um, unfortunate ABA. I don't even. I, don't even I, sure
0: I, I, I tend to I tend to call it traditional ABA. Sure. Uh, you no, know, <laughs> just as the nicest term I can think of for right. for the early versions of mm-hmm. of what we've been trying to do. But go ahead.
1: Yeah, but beyond that, you know, traditional um, under supported under under overseen (laughs) um, ABA, which I I think is an absolute plague on our field, but it's also a, maybe a separate conversation. Um, And then, you know, I honestly, what happened was I, I pestered Megan uh, every couple of weeks for a few months until she (laughs) agreed to bring me on at navigation. Um, And it really, you know, That move was really transformative in terms of how how I thought about behavior principles. Um, If you are going to go to the trouble of intimately understanding the science of learning, your application of that should be more sophisticated than you do this and I give you a skittle. um, That you don't need to understand uh, scientific principles to hand someone a skittle after they do a completely unrelated task. Uh, so the seven steps were um, really influential in all of our programming. Um, we, at the time, you know, it was a, it was a different moment in ABA. And um, uh, at the time, we also didn't have the benefit of having um, frequent and in-depth conversations about things like assent and degrees of freedom and, you know, enhanced choice and those kind of related conversations. Um, so I would say that the seven steps are still very integral to, to my practice. And, and all of my programming is influenced by that. And it's a reinterpretation for me.
0: Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I think there's a lot of things that I did, even in the early days of the seven steps, that I, I'm absolutely not doing now, and I'm teaching differently. Um, and, and yeah, the, the idea that the seven steps uh, was developed to move us forward from a completely different level of uh, captive learning. To a a focus on motivated learning and uh, a way to to approach um, maintaining cooperation without physical blocking or or um, escape extinction. Uh, at that point, it was quite forward thinking. But as anything, as time moves on, um, you have to progress with it. And uh,
1: yeah, that's great. amazing. And you know what, Robert? Um, another another really influential piece, and I can't remember. If this is from the seven steps or from the motivation and reinforcement book, but um the the teaching arc it has been really influential. Um so for for those well, I'll it's your idea, I'll let you explain to the listeners what the teaching is.
0: Well, I'm gonna have to do a whole other podcast on the teaching arc. And maybe <laughs> you've just invited yourself back as a guest on the show. <laughs> okay. um, but yeah, you know, I, I don't think too much about it because. Uh, it's always been kind of something I throw in as an advanced lesson along with the advanced stuff for the the seven steps. Um, But yeah, the teaching arc is a pretty exciting, uh, was a pretty exciting realization at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up, but let's save that. Let's actually, let's maybe have (laughs) you back at some point. And, uh, and when I'm ready to talk about the teaching arc and we'll do an episode on that. Sound good.
1: That sounds great. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Um, So like I was saying, I know that I didn't necessarily mention this, but you know, I have been working on updating the seven steps because they haven't changed in their written form in at least ten years, and it it is definitely time for an update. And I want you to know that I've been putting a ton of time and thought and effort into making sure that the language of the seven steps is keeping up with the changing understandings we have as a field. Uh, And it's time for a change in the tone and wording of the actual steps uh, to help reflect that. So uh, I'm in the process of writing the second edition of the book I have here with uh, Megan Miller and thought that uh, this would be a perfect time to unveil where I'm at currently with the language for Step 7. Love to hear your thoughts. Um, I'm ready. My new idea for Step 7. Step 7. Troubleshooting the first six steps. Show your child that not following your most important instructions will not usually result in the same levels of reinforcement. All non-participation will be analyzed and problem solved, but it will also be respected. I well, like it. That's where I'm at right now. And uh, what, what is interesting now about the way that I teach the seven steps Mm-hmm. is that it's no longer a hard and fast rule to use extinction. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, step seven is now considered a troubleshooting step to help you consider all of your options of ways to respond when the first six steps have not resulted in the ascent that you were hoping for. So, yeah, that's where we're at right now. What do you think?
1: I do. I I like that conceptualization. I think you know, it's it's a lot of words. It's a, it's a lot of thoughts to pack in to one step. Um, yeah. So that, well, that's think, the, think
0: of how complicated step seven is getting now. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. All the things that you have to do with step seven uh, to be able to use it well and not just blanket it over a child. Um, Mm -hmm. It really is about analyzing the antecedents and looking back over your first six steps and seeing if you gave your instructions the right way at the right time with enough motivation. Was there outside motivators? Does this child have a past history with this sort of uh, instruction and -hmm. all of that on top of then determining um, what is your best path forward in the moment? Um, whether moving on or um, some form of extinction, or at least just a lessening of the amount of available reinforcement might be an option for you, uh, and then making those decisions and going from there. So I really do want to look at step seven more as troubleshooting than a hard and fast rule. When you don't get this, you do this, I mean, and getting away even more so from that, that traditional type of language. Thank you for taking the time to join me today on the Just 7 Steps podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take just a moment to leave me a comment, give a thumbs up, share the video with others, and subscribe to our YouTube channel so that you won't miss out on any of our Just 7 Steps videos designed to help parents with children with challenges find your family's path to progress. See you right here next week.